good evening. Thank you for coming out tonight. Uh, we are in our last week uh, studying the statement of faith. We've been two semesters on this. Uh, I've enjoyed listening and teaching it very much. Uh, I've greatly appreciated all of the men who've participated in teaching, uh, the fine job they've done. Uh, and again, I've mentioned this a few times, but the gratitude I have that our whole church should have for uh, the numbers of, of men who are excellent teachers, faithful to the word of God, take it seriously, prepare. Um, it's part of God's goodness to us. Uh, just in a couple of thoughts on our statement of faith uh, before we move on from it tonight. Um, a couple suggestions. One is reading through and studying it and find if there's anything in it that you don't understand. That's something to read more about or ask a pastor about so that you can say when you're done, I, I generally understand everything that's in here. So that would be a way just of growing your, your understanding of scripture and essential biblical doctrine. So uh, consider that. The other is using it as a tool for your devotional worship life of taking sense and just praying over it. Use it to direct your prayers about the person of God, the greatness of God, the doctrines that are essential. So that could be a help to you uh, in your worship time. Uh, and then to let you know, there are two national committees in Sovereign Grace that uh, were set up to work on making a small group discussion guide based on the statement of faith. So I don't know how fast the committees are working, but there's a group working on it. And then the other is a catechism that is being developed. A catechism is a teaching tool. Generally, it's been used for for kids, but it's not limited to that, uh, using questions based on the statement of faith. So it becomes further more a teaching tool, something that can be used in the home. So there are some good tools that will be made available, hopefully in the next year or two, that we can look forward to. Uh, let's pray as we start. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for making yourself known. We, we praise you for the grand truths about you, for you are wondrous in every aspect of your being and your work. We thank you for these weeks that we've had to review and dig into these essential truths. Uh, may it sink to, deeply into our lives, how we think and so how we live before you. Uh, we ask for this night as we finish looking at last things that you would encourage us, strengthen our hearts for we live in a difficult world. We live in times uh, that are filled with uncertainty. And we ask that you know, this would serve our hearts and our minds. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are the last major section, last things, which has three subsections. I'll read each subsection one at a time and then we'll review it. So last things, if you have your statement with you. Death and the intermediate state. Death entered God's good creation as a result of Adam's sin. And now all people are subject to God's curse of death. Yet believers have no need to fear because Christ has conquered death and delivered us from its dominion. Although our bodies return to dust for a time, death for the Christian has become a doorway to paradise where our souls enter immediately into God's presence to behold and enjoy our Savior and to rest from our labors. 
in company with all the spirits of the righteous made perfect, we will await the redemption of our bodies and our full and final salvation. The souls of the unredeemed, however, are cast immediately into Hades to experience torment as they await final judgment for their sins. Now, breaking that down, the first statement, death entered God's good creation as a result of Adam's sin, and now all people are subject to God's curse of death. Uh, the world has increasingly liked to talk about death in terms of kind of the circle of life. This natural occurrence that somehow uh, leads to good and is nothing to fear. And in a general sense, the Bible says absolutely not. Uh, death is not natural to God's creation. Death is the natural response to sin. But it's not a natural occurrence in this world Death is a horrible intrusion into what God created good. It is a curse. It is a form of the judgment of God that has come upon the world. It, death is natural to us now because everyone dies, because everyone is a sinner. Uh, but Death is not this nice, natural part of, of existence. It is the curse because of sin. Sin is the cause of death. There would be no death if there had never been sin. As hard for it is for us to imagine a world without death because it is so common. Sin is the root, the engine of every sorrow, without exception. Every pain, every moment and form of discord, all of it comes out of sin. Sin is to be despised more than anything. And that includes our difficulties. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, a, uh, one of the great Puritan pastors, uh, had an entire book dealing the sinfulness of sin. And his theme throughout the whole book is that as much as we don't like affliction and difficulties, we should hate sin more. And the importance of knowing that is so that we never, in our fear and dislike of difficulties, ever compromise with sin. This is awkward. This is difficult. I don't like this. You know, God would understand a little compromise. It, sin is always the worst thing that we could do in any situation. There is nothing worse than sin. It is what has brought the horror of death into the world. And yet, as terrible as death is. The second statement says, yet believers have no need to fear. Because Christ has conquered death and delivered us from its dominion. The reason we don't fear death is not because not death is not so bad after all. Christ has conquered death. In Christ, we still experience the pain and the sorrow that death brings. That terrible gash into our hearts when someone we love is taken from us. It's never easy. There, there are some times when the the suffering of someone has become so difficult that it kind of eases us, our hearts a little bit in, in letting them go compared to living like this. But 
There's no way to make it easy. Love wants to be with. Death pulls apart. But we no longer need to fear death. 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death, what makes death really hurt, is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because death is a penalty of sin, death is part of judgment. And it's not just leaving this body that is the judgment of God. It is the wrath of God and the second death, the eternal death or punishment that is part of it. The fear of death for us in this world generally is, well, it ends doing what we want. We're enjoying life, even if it's difficult. There, we want to be here, we want to do things, and death just, it stops it. Death to us, it's, it's the end. Who wants life to end? Uh, but it's really the opposite, the, the exact opposite for us. Death is not an end to anything but to this body in this form. It's not even the end of physical existence. The, the only lasting dominion now because of Christ is him. Death doesn't have dominion. Sin doesn't have dominion. We're not under the authority control of death. We're not under the authority and control of sin. We're under the authority and the sovereign rule and control of one person, Jesus Christ. And sin is under that authority. Death is under that authority. Satan is under that authority. And so death, as unpleasant as it can be in what can lead to death and in being those left behind, we don't have to be afraid of it. It is not an end. The next statement, although our bodies return to dust for a time, death for the Christian has become a doorway to paradise where our souls enter immediately into God's presence to behold and enjoy our Savior and to rest from our labors. A wonderful picture of God's grace. How big God's grace is for everyone who saves is what he allowed to take place with the repentant thief on the cross who had no time for any work or labor. All he had time for was a testimony that led to the truth that we all cherish. Today you will be with me in paradise. And ever since then, all God's people have been able to rejoice in knowing immediately death to Christ. Immediately. And an evil, sinful man who only moments before had come to faith, was used by God to bring that truth out so we could know it. God honoring him. Another glimpse to see how big God's heart is for those he saves. How much he wants to use us. So when we die as believers, we're following Jesus. We who are Christ's followers, death is now part of that. Christ went into death. We're just following him. We all talk about it. Let's follow Jesus. He actually has made death, that which we fear most, 
He's even made that just one more way. We're following him. We're not going into the unknown. We're not breaking new ground. We are literally following Jesus. In Revelation 5, 5 and 6. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain. With seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So this, this vision of Christ, a lamb who is slain, the one who has gone through death and now is one who is alive standing with seven horns meaning complete power, seven eyes meaning complete knowledge, seeing everything, seven spirits meaning omnipresence. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. And he went through death ahead of us. And all we're doing is following him. And we will immediately find him when we walk through it. We increasingly, as people who love what God loves, see that existence here is incomplete. For all the joys we take, it will always be incomplete. Because we're never completely sinless. We're incomplete. The world obviously is incomplete. Our ability to love and enjoy God is incomplete. This morning as I was praying, asking the Spirit of God to help me love God more. And as I prayed, I said, Lord, how many hundreds of times have I prayed that? How it, it feels, pro progress seems so minute. And sometimes feel like you're going backwards. Saying, Lord, by now, I should be so much further ahead. And one day we will. Life here is incomplete. It's marred by sin. It's marred by struggles. It's, it's marred by our heart distance from God. That's why the Apostle Paul, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. If I'm here to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. I have things to do. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed. My desire is to depart. Why? Not because this is so hard. My desire is to complete, to be with Christ. For that is far better. The great joy of heaven is not that our problems are done. Circumstances are nicer. Though that's all pretty good. The great joy of heaven is Christ himself. We will be with him. Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Fourth statement, in company with all the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We will await the redemption of our bodies and our full and final salvation. In death, we are immediately in the presence of Christ. With our soul, our bodies, not yet. 
Uh, we're glorified in our souls, awaiting to join a glorified body. That is coming to you soon. It, it really is. Very soon, we're going to be in the presence of Jesus. And not long after that, we will be joined to a resurrected body. So every person at the gym, you know, <laughs> we all know who they are. Perhaps there's one or two in the room. Don't know. Don't say anything you'll regret. But this body will put those to shame. <laughs> They'll be glorified too with their bodies. But it's not just perfected soul, glorified body. It's then in the company of everyone else being perfect of body and soul. Who could imagine that? You're probably just give me an afternoon of peace, <laughs> which generally means nobody in sight. Give me an afternoon just with nobody around, then I can have peace. How about everyone around and it's pure joy? All the time, just pure joy. So much joy, it's like, um, um, I, I think Dickens is the author, the uh, Scrooge. You know, on Christmas morning, you know, he, he doesn't know what to do with himself. He's so happy. You know, giggling, laughing, jumping, dancing. Uh, it's got to be more than that. I imagine that song will be coming from our lips regularly. Just so happy and joyful. That singing will be almost as natural as speaking. Because we'll always just be so joyful. That just saying words by themselves won't be enough. Our salvation, completely accomplished by Christ, is not fulfilled in us until we have our perfect bodies in the new creation. Romans 8 says... We, we groan inwardly. We're, we're saved, but we're still groaning. We're still yearning for the completion. And so our, until we are perfected and our bodies join to our souls, our salvation still, though it's accomplished, there's more to come. And so it... What can be part of our discontent in this world is what we see other people experiencing that we'll never get. Oh, look at the house they have, or the car they have, or the vacation they have. Or uh, a friend of mine, a pastor, was at a bunch of the national parks out west, you know, posting all these amazing pictures. I want to be there. I want to have that view. You, all kinds of life experiences. Or, more realistically, food pictures. Ooh, I want to try that. Or, I want to eat there. Let's get real. Grand Canyon would be nice, but... Yeah. And yet, we are not missing out on anything 
because there is a new heaven and a new earth. Our eternity is in physical form. And so God who made this physical world to be enjoyed and gave us all the senses, we are going to travel and visit and enjoy all kinds of, all that God made in the world to enjoy, we will be enjoying. And so next time you start becoming discontent for what people have and we don't, you're not missing out. You will be enjoying all that God created for us to enjoy forever. And so any resentment, discontent, envy is completely unnecessary. You have no disadvantage because of whether it's a health disadvantage that's limited you, whether it is that you don't have privilege, you don't have opportunity, money, won't mean anything very soon. Salvation isn't fulfilled until we are in the new heaven and new earth with our new bodies, and, and salvation is not fulfilled until the church is fully gathered. Revelation 7 9 to 10. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation isn't complete until the church is all gathered. Because again, that's part of God's purpose from the beginning. A people gathered who love him and love each other. That is when it is all complete. Which should point to us the, the immense value of investing in when we gather it is was it dan or someone just speaking was it this sunday the sunday before the foretaste it is when we're gathering it, it is it's meant to be bits and pieces and pictures of what god has intended our eternity and so to invest in that is god honoring it's Getting what we're here for and getting what God is doing. It's getting what's of value, what's important. The supernatural impact of when we gather. Because what God is doing through the Spirit in and through us, as we've seen in recent weeks. The testimony of Unified, healthy churches. These, these are all precious, important. That we give our, our heart to it fully. The next statement. The souls of the unredeemed, however, are cast immediately into Hades to experience torment as they await final judgment for their sins. So Hades is, is not the final resting place that we think of as hell. But there is the, the immediacy, again, of those outside of Christ. When they die, they are immediately in a place that is a place of suffering, of realizing how. Think of that moment. Realizing how horrible you are. And there is no hope, nothing. No reason to envy those who by sin and selfishness seem to be gaining advantage. Those in business who cheat and get an advantage those in your family who 
steal inheritance, grab things. It just seems to be something that happens often in families when death comes. Whatever it is that people are doing, misusing, misrepresenting, no one's getting away with anything. There's nothing to envy. Nothing to envy. So we have no need to seek retribution. No need to worry. Will they get their justice? Revelation 6.10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That is those who have been martyred for their faith. There's no need for, for us to worry about those things. To try to make it happen. To be angry. To be resentful. To be embittered. We are justly angered at evil. When we see evil takes place, hurting lives, we should be angered at that evil and at the hurt that happens. Sometimes the, the church has not always been good at, in our desire to bring healing, we can put more attention on wanting to care for abusers and not give much attention to the victims and the abused. And that's wrong. It's wrong. We, we begin with those who've been harmed and make sure we're giving care there. And we want to see people who do evil. We want to see righteousness come. We want to see restoration. But churches many times have brought even more sorrow and pain to the abused by how they've handled it with complete lack of care. We have to be careful of those things. More deeply, think being embittered by sinners, be filled with pity for their emptiness and their end. Uh, think so often what takes what's taking place in Ukraine and Belarus and the evil that's happening. A couple men who have produced so much pain. Just a couple of men. The weight and the judgment that will fall on them if they don't Rather than be intimidated or afraid or worried, tremble at what God will do. Death in the intermediate state. We move to the next section, Christ's return and the resurrection. At the appointed time, known only to God, Jesus Christ will return to the earth in power and glory as judge and king to whom every knee will bow. Christ's personal, physical, and visible return is the blessed hope of all who trust in him. At the end of the age, the just and the unjust will be raised as their souls are reunited to their bodies. The just to a resurrection of life. The unjust to a resurrection of judgment. When the dead in Christ are raised, their perishable, their perishable bodies will be redeemed and made like Christ's imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual body. Those in Christ who are alive shall likewise be changed. And thus will all God's glorified people forever bear 
the image of their Savior. First statement, at the appointed time known only to God, Jesus Christ will return to the earth in power and glory as judge and king to whom every knee will bow. Revelation 1.7 tells us, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Our theology of Christ, without any diminishment of our focus on his entrance into this world and his ministry, his death for sin and physical resurrection, all of that must remain large in our minds. What I think can be not emphasized as much is is pulling up and including, really just pulling that out to also Christ as reigning king. It's not a full picture until we we see all of that. And and our, our thinking and living in this world needs the addition of, and Christ is king. Revelation 19, one of the the great statements about Christ, one of the great descriptions of Christ in the Bible, which which emphasizes this truth. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That's who we serve. That's who we call friend. That's the one who ever lives to intercede for us. Toward the end of next month, we'll begin preaching through Hebrews. And this work of Christ's intercession, we'll see in great detail. When we think of how mighty he is, by His birth and death, we see his commitment, his love, his faithfulness in his resurrection and his reign. We see his power and might that that comes in with this love so that we don't need to be afraid or intimidated. We don't need to wring our hands. What's going to happen in the future? Christ will reign. We're disappointed. We can be angry at sin from leaders. But our hope is not in them. Christ reigns. It doesn't matter what they do or don't do. It doesn't matter what all of them together try to do or don't do. Christ reigns. They're just like chaff before him. They're nothing. And to know that that one, how committed he is, how much he loves us. We need the the awareness of of him, his returning for us. (coughs) 
it's easy for the return of Christ to be kind of a slogan for us. We don't live in tangible anticipation. You know, I remember in the 70s, early 80s, with the gospel concerts, you know, almost every week, Jimmy will remember this, we've heard it many times, the concerts, you know, the groups, they would, they would have some song about heaven, and then they'd throw in, and who knows, he may be coming tonight. They didn't believe he was coming tonight any more than they believed they were going to be invited to the White House tonight. I mean, theoretically, they believe Jesus is coming. They're not believing it, and they, you know, just, they had to say it. They said it hundreds of times, night after night, and it could be tonight, and just, but we're not living that way. We're not living. Christ returning, Christ showing up. Us standing before him. I'd say we'd do things a little bit different if we believed there was even the remotest chance he was coming tonight. What would we not be worried about? What indignation would we continue with the next time I see them? How much would mean nothing? All current events are headed to Christ coming back. That's where it all goes. Where is this world headed? To Christ coming. Where the world is headed is like the train coming out the tunnel. This world with all it's doing is like the car that drives into a train tunnel by mistake. And then you see those lights coming. And you know... That's a collision. You're not going to win. The coming of Christ barreling in. Unstoppable. Second statement, Christ's personal, physical, visible return is the blessed hope of all who trust in him. Christ's personal Him physically, visibly returning. In the beautiful weather we had this past Saturday, I had a graveside service. I had a short graveside service. And I I read... A passage I've read many times that often will do a graveside services um, and then just spoke a little bit about it. Uh, and I introduced it. I've read this many Whenever I read this in a funeral, you're always wondering, the unbelievers here have to be thinking he is out of his mind. He is out of his mind if he thinks there is any truth in that. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And the world is just... They are insane. Coming out of the grave, beating them in the air, trumpets, angels. Oh my goodness. And yet, that's going to be an historical event. 10,000 years from now, we'll be talking about it. We will remember exactly where we were if we see them coming up. You don't forget that. We'll be remembering every bit of it. It will be part of our history. It's a real event. It's an event that everyone 
and the world will experience one way or the other. It's an event to plan for. To daydream of, to focus on, and as he says, to use for encouragement. And therefore encourage one another in this. And so we filter all the news, current events, our fears by the reality that everyone's coming out of the grave. That we're meeting the Lord in the air as he comes to reign. Can you think of something bigger that's going to happen in your life than that? Shouldn't, isn't that deserving of shaping how we're walking through life? How we're interpreting life? Everything you fear, everything that makes you anxious, ends with the glorious return of Christ. Third statement, at the end of the age, the just and the unjust will be raised as their souls are reunited to their bodies. The just to a resurrection of life, the unjust to a resurrection of judgment. Acts 24, there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. What we saw in Thessalonians was a description of the believers, but everyone will be raised. Every soul will be joined to its body because the eternal destiny of everyone is body and soul. With the Lord or in judgment, everyone is raised. Everyone stands before Christ. So the physical realm is not unimportant. At different times, it's treated as though it doesn't mean much. And the Bible is clear. We, our perspective of spiritual things over physical, there's, there's clearly the, the value of things. And, and yet, in a very true way, the physical still is, is of value. It's not unimportant because God made this world physically. God was so committed that his son became flesh forever. He will have a body forever. And he's creating a new earth and new bodies because this is what God intended. And he's not losing what he intended and just abandoning the physical part. We'll just go spiritual. It's easier to manage. It's all that God made forever thinking of all of that together. Next statement. When the dead in Christ are raised, the perishable bodies will be redeemed and will be made like Christ's imperishable, glorious, powerful spiritual bodies. Those in Christ who are alive shall likewise be changed and thus will all God's glorified people forever bear the image of their Savior. As Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. God actually says that about you. So you will also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you, this brother's flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you, mystery, we shall not all sleep, die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. This encourages us with the promise of God's glorious completion. And so we don't need to be worried about body image. I had my annual appointment with my doctor. So all the blood tests, everything was fine. All the anxiety, a month ahead of time, I started getting nervous 
because the first thing that happens is the great humiliation. You have to step on the scale. And they have to say it out loud and write it down. And then the doctor has to come in with what it was last year, what it is this year. I, I tried to, what's my lightest shirt? I didn't wear a t-shirt. What's my lightest pants? Took the belt off in the car, took off my shoes, didn't wear a watch, had my wallet in my coat. I mean, every ounce I could gain or lose. Because uh, a few years ago, it had been up higher, but I had my coat on. I didn't know we were going to step on the scale. And then you have the little talk. You know. <laughs> Sugar's not good for you. Maybe think about eating less of this. So now it's, you just have to, and once you do that, you can't forget and then wear your shoes or something, and now you just, you have to stay scaled down. The other, because the, the only other option is to actually be lighter when you go in, and that's not happening. And yet, body image really doesn't matter. Now, there can be health things that we want to take care of and we want to, what God has given us, but what we look like and what we look like as time goes on <laughs> and, you know, our society is so obsessed with all of the surgeries and things doesn't make you look younger. It kind of makes you look scary once you get <laughs> you get a few of those surgeries and you start looking scary. But you know how much time, you know, from a child, you know, a teen, an adult, you know, the the worry and upset and angst about what we look like. There's so much angst about some little flaw. We worry so much about it, and we don't need to. We don't need to be worried about body image, limitations, flaws, none of it. Because we get a new one. Perfect. And also, though we see in this then the inappropriateness of anything unclean in a believer. Rather than worrying about physical attributes, because nothing defiled will be acceptable in heaven. Nothing. Nothing sneaking in. Not one bad attitude. Not one form of selfishness. The last section, the judgment and the consummation. On the last day, all people will appear before Christ, who is the judge of all. Those who suppressed God's truth in unrighteousness and did not obey the gospel of Christ will suffer the righteous wrath of God and be justly cast into the hell of fire with the devil and his angels. There they will experience eternal conscious punishment according to their sins. Those saved by Christ, whose names are written in the book of life, will be welcomed into the joy of their master and richly re rewarded for every good work done in his name. God's glorified people will inherit the kingdom from which all sin, sorrow, suffering, and death will be banished. Christ as king will set all of creation free from its bondage to corruption, making new the heavens and the earth, and establishing his eternal rule in his consummated kingdom. Surrounded by unimaginable beauty, we will enjoy unhindered communion with our triune God, beholding him, serving him, worshiping him, reigning with him forever and ever. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This section is short. 
no opinion matters about eternity but God's. What's right or wrong, what's just or unjust, there's only one opinion that matters, the one who's judge. All the rest is absolutely irrelevant, doesn't mean a thing. So people say, oh, you know, my God would never, unless you're talking about the God of the Bible, your God doesn't exist. The Bible is literally the standard of the universe. There's no other standard. There's no other truth. There's no other law. It's the law of God. That's it. Hell is an inescapable reality. Those who claim to be Christian and deny it reject. They're just ripping, ripping pages out of the Bible. The only way that hell is not our reality is through faith in Christ who alone removes the guilt of sin. Without him, period, it, all there is is the judgment of God because we're all sinners. John 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him because the wrath of God is on all of us because we're all sinners unless we follow Christ, truly life given to him all that's left is what remains, the wrath of God. For those who are in Christ, God joyfully rewards us. Joy is not a quality we have more than God. That we're, we can be bubbly and happy and laughter and take joy. And somehow God doesn't have that attitude toward us that we have for those we love. God is joyful in his love for you, bubbling over in his love for you. You don't have it more than him. He has it more than you. And reward can be awkward. For, we can feel uncomfortable because we don't deserve it. True. But the love of God to bless his people, he actually rewards faithfulness. It's just more grace. The new heaven and new earth will remain heavenly because no sin will enter it. Ever. Holiness is heavenly. Heaven is holy. So how much more heavenly and better would our lives be if we are more holy? That's more heavenly. Christ will set creation free from its bondage, we're told, to corruption. And not even the memories of sorrows will burden us. Isaiah 65, Behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come into mind. Whether we actually can't think of them or just the impact is so changed this we we can just know this we won't be burdened by any of it the heart of our future is unbridled joy in christ everything will be joyful everything will be christ-centered and so those who believe all this say amen come lord Jesus. On Sunday, you know, Dan was asking, are, are we really enthusiastic for the return? Or does that, oh, I got things I want to do. It's kind of a litmus test. How much would we rather be with him or how much do we just want to enjoy stuff first? This we should know. This should be our perspective. The Lord is on his way. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that with all that seems uncertain to us about the future, there's a lot that you tell us that is clear, that is dependable, that we know for sure. 
May our minds be filled with what we know for sure. That it's greater than every uncertainty. So encourage your people. Lord, just help us to entrust burdens where they belong to you. And to embrace what it means to live for you wholeheartedly. To divest ourselves of the sin that just brings sorrow. Lord, may we see Christ with greater clarity. May our hearts be overwhelmed with love for him that shapes how we live this night, this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.